So this is going to be about 30 minutes of meditation. Get comfortable, hopefully. It's a lovely bell sound, but it probably sounds like a thud on your end. Sorry, I still haven't made the attempt to figure out how to change that on Zoom. <laughs> It'll, it'll happen one of these days. <clears throat> so today, it's my intention to talk about fear, and the basis of fear and what we can do about it, according to the Buddha, according to the Dhamma. So as we settle in here to meditation, we can take a moment to reflect on how fear is really all about the world. We can talk about that later, see if you agree with me. And when we meditate, we're really leaving the world behind. Coming quiet, quieting the body, sitting still but relaxed and alert. and calming the mind. And this is because the, uh, the world begins to go away when we get really quiet or not thinking about the things we have to do or the people in our life or our memories from the past or our hopes and fears for the future were here in the present moment. And really meditation takes us beyond, of course, letting go of the things that are weighing on us or the things that are exciting us the things of the world, but it helps us lean into and you might say bring or allow the state of mind to arise that's really the other world. The Buddha said that Right, part of right view is to know that there is this world and there is the other world, the spiritual world. And when we look at other traditions, they have the same idea. There is this world and there is the other <clears throat> world. There may be different ideas about what the other world is possibly because there are many different versions of it. 
But to know that this world with all of its dangers and sadness and joy and excitement, this is not the only place, not the only state of mind. And probably the most common meditation object helping us to let go of this world is the breath. So in the yoga philosophy, they talk about the physical body and then a layer kind of beyond it, the astral body, I think is the next layer I may be misremembering, but this next layer outside the physical body is kind of an energetic body, more spiritual, really a spiritual kind of form. And there's a layer in between, which is the breath. The breath really, of course, is very physical. On the one hand, it brings oxygen, takes away carbon dioxide, but it's also a, a gateway or an, an avenue to the spiritual. The energetic. So when we bring our mindfulness to the breath, we're really opening that door to what lies beyond this world. And this is why when we read the Satipatthana Sutta, each of the objects of mindfulness is followed by this refrain of being mindful internally and externally, etc. And then ends with meditating without any longing or grief for this world or sometimes is translated as without longing for anything in this world. And that's because for the time being, we've put the world aside. Now we can just relax into this world, this other world letting go of sights, smells, tastes, the feeling of touch. Because if we stay present with the breath and we give it some time and the mind becomes more quiet, then the senses start to close down. We're moving away from the central world. Hearing continues, 
is the last one to close down. And then of course, there's the mind. And when the other five senses close down for this time being, then we have an opportunity to really observe the mind. So we'll spend this time quietly present with the breath. Aware that we are letting go of the world and noticing what comes as a result. If thoughts arise about this world, then remind yourself, this isn't the time. Now is the time to shift, to let go of everything from this world.
So welcome back to this world. <laughs> um, I'll see a few things about, about fear and it's, it's really motivated by um, the fact that it's come up a few times this week, talking about fear and hearing about um, fears that people are dealing with. And, <clears throat> and of course, it's such a common, ordinary, completely natural experience. We all understand it. We all have fears. We live in this world and it's an unsafe place. I mean, everything really is uncertain and it's, um, you know, not the way we would like it to be because it's always changing and there are plenty of dangerous things. Um, we were visiting a neighbor the other day and he pointed out that um, a mountain lion had jumped into the back of his pickup truck in and out again, not while we were there, but we could see the, the, the paw marks, the paw claw marks going into the back of the truck and coming back out. I mean, the truck is parked like right there in front of their house. <laughs> uh, this is like at the one end of our property. And uh, of course, you know, mountain lions are, um, you know, one thing you can be afraid of. I mean, here in uh, California, this is the, the Bikuni or Bikus um, tiger stories. You know, it's like we have mountain lions. I, I remember Ajahn Mahabua said that he never really got over fear of tigers even though he was an arahant for decades, he never got over fear of tigers. What does that mean? I think it means that when he would hear a tiger or see a tiger or smell a tiger, <laughs> that the body would react. So of course we, we all have those things. Even, even if we've completely realized what, what this world is and the way things actually are, some things are going to evoke fear. And so this is, this is um, you know, something to, to look at. Like what, what kinds of things are naturally um, appropriate to be afraid of and reasonable? And what kinds of things are unreasonable fears? So uh, I heard... Uh, a snippet of um, broadcast on the radio where a doctor was talking about the way we were, we are with COVID with the pandemic these days and talking about how, you know, how much um, for some of us, it's caused us to be afraid of being with other people or, you know, um, having some fear, maybe a respectful fear of contracting the virus is understandable, useful. But he said, you know, if you see someone in their 30s walking down the street uh, without anybody else around but wearing a mask, it makes you think, 
you know, there's a, perhaps an unreasonable fear there, you know, that when we have reasonable fear, we understand the, um, the thing that we're fearing, then we can make decisions, we can understand how it works, learn from it. And instead of being afraid, um, do the things that keep us safe. So it's a little like that out here with poison oak. You know, people might be afraid of getting poison oak. Can't blame them. I've had some pretty bad cases of it and it's no fun at all. <laughs> but you still walk through the forest, but you just get to know what poison oak looks like and you try to stay clear of it. And if you can't stay clear of it, then you do the right things to clean up afterwards and you probably get away without getting uh, too bad, too bad a case of it, if any. And so it's like, this is how we can approach so many things in life in the world. You know, like we get to know, you get to know um, the nature of rattlesnakes, you get to know the nature of mountain lions and so on and so forth. And, you know, you learn how to, how to live together. As Ajahn Pasano said to me one time when I was concerned about walking from the, the sala, the, the place where we would have meditate back to where I was staying. And, uh, and I said, you know, something about the animals there, bears and mountain lions and whatnot. Um, and he said, well, they have their own life. <laughs> Like they're not really that interested in you. you know? I mean, of course, there could be times when that's not the case. You don't want to surprise them and so on. Okay, so I think you get the idea. So like we learned about, we learned a lot about COVID in the last two years. We learned maybe it's not so necessary to be washing your vegetables uh, in the produce market, but it's very important to be careful about what air we're breathing and if we're um, using masks and things like that to be safe. Okay, so where does this leave us? What kinds of fears do, do you struggle with? You know, like what kinds of fears come up? A lot of times people will have a lot of fear and worry about things that might happen that never happen. Or we might notice that we have fear arising like during the middle of the night. And then as soon as we get up, it somehow disappears. And this is just coming to understand our own mind. You know, we, we get to know this mind and a lot of the, most of the things that come up in it, maybe, maybe we could say everything is from the past past conditioning. We can't really take responsibility for that at this point. I mean, we can take responsibility for things we've consciously done and, and learned from, and that's good. But I mean, you know, things that pop into the mind that we might be afraid of, we don't have to own it. It's not really ours. It's part of a process that's been in play for who knows how long, how many lifetimes. 
And we uh, now we have a choice. We have a choice for how we respond to that process, how we manage it. And so here it's really good to look at what the Buddha did because he has a couple of uh, places where he talks about fear and how we can live without fear, without fear and without worry. And so one of the suttas that you might be familiar with is in the Majjhima Nikaya, number four. It's called Fear and Dread, one translation of it. And the Buddha actually, I think I might share it with you. I think I have it here somewhere. This isn't it. <laughs> We're getting there. Here's the Fear and Dread Sutta. And I'm not going to read it. I don't expect you to read it, but I'm going to scroll down here into the area where he's talking about having fear. Now, this is before he was enlightened. He talks about having fear being in the forest. He's, he's being um, told, oops, too far, sorry. There are, before my awakening, when I was still, um, unawakening, but intending to awaken. I thought remote lodgings in the wilderness and the forest are challenging. It's hard to maintain seclusion. And it's hard to find joy in it. Staying alone, the forest seemed to rob the mind of a mendicant who isn't immersed in samadhi. So here's a clue. Being immersed in samadhi, this is the other world, right? The spiritual world. And then there's a, a kind of protection. They say even physically, if you're immersed in samadhi, that you're not going to have anything uh, happen to your body that would harm it. But he's pointing out here that we're not always immersed in samadhi. And, um, and then, you know, he would uh, think about how... And, um, he relates, well, first of all, before this, he says that, um, you know, he would feel, he would hear a deer walk by or a peacock break a branch or some other sound. And I probably everybody's had that experience where we get afraid of something. It's not really a threat. And then he would think about this fear. And then he would remind himself that if I that he doesn't have to be afraid because he has pure um, conduct by body, speech, and mind. Now, how does that relate? You know, it's like he, he talks about well, other other people, other mendicants out there who don't have, you know, have unpurified conduct, they might be afraid, but I'm one who has purified conduct. And then I don't need to feel afraid. And if we think about that, it's like, how does that keep us safe? Well, for one thing, even if um, for some reason we're, we die right there, we don't have to worry about the future if we, if we are pure in mind, if we've settled all the disputes, if we've 
finished all of our um, unwholesome habits. And then he talks about livelihood in the same way, not being full of desire, having a heart full of love, not one with ill will and malicious intent, free of dullness, drowsiness. He goes through the five hindrances here. Not being cowardly, not lacking energy, etc. These ways of, you know, the mind being still pure, um, a life that's pure. So if we're dealing with fear, one place we can look is how can I clean up my, my ethics, my sila? How can I clean up the way I interact with people, be more loving, um, bring more of that into my life? It's like bringing more spiritual qualities into our life operating in every aspect of our life from those spiritual qualities. And I know a lot of you do this already, but do you remind yourself that that's true when fear and worry arise? Can you get a sense of how we can feel confident and comfortable, even though this world is really dangerous, even though there may be um, who knows what will happen next? There's another sutta that I mention often in the Anguttara Nikaya, in the Book of Nines, number five, called Powers. And you've probably heard me talk about it. I think it's a great sutta. It talks about the four powers and the five fears, the five fears being the fear of death. Um, the fear of what comes after death, the fear of losing one's livelihood, the fear of feeling afraid or intimidated or um, timid, timid in, in, a, in an assembly in a group of people. Um, there's one more. Also, mm -hmm. bad reputation. Fear of getting a bad reputation. Thank you. Fear of getting a bad reputation. And he said, you don't have to have any of those fears if you know the difference between what's wholesome and unwholesome. So that's the power of wisdom. You use your energy to uh, live in a wholesome way and avoid what's unwholesome. That's the power of energy. And the power of blamelessness, really keeping the precepts, living a blameless life. Do you have the feeling that you're living a blameless life? I mean, if you think about yesterday, anything the noble ones, the arahans would blame you for. And what if there is? Um, as Ajahn Panyawato said, if I'm guilty, I'm guilty, so what? <laughs> we just learn from that. We're all learning. We learn from that and we make whatever amends we can, but mainly we go on with a different intention as we move forward. And then the, the fourth one I know I've mentioned before, the power of sustaining favorable relationships. You know, spiritual friends, even if they don't appear to be spiritual, you know, the Buddha said, look for people who have more wisdom than you do 
and try to be like them. Look for people with better virtue than you have and try to be like them. People who are more generous. Try to be like them. People who have deeper faith. We always have some room for improvement, but it's really important that we're not, what do I want to say, pushing ourselves too hard also. That we appreciate all the goodness that we've brought into our lives and that we keep cultivating. And so these, these kinds of mental states where we, where we really um, bring the, the appreciation for ourselves and others, the appreciation for what's good in our life, loving kindness, compassion, and evenness of mind, more into all situations. We don't have to have so much fear. And we know how to handle it when it arises. We don't have to have so much guilt. We can recognize that this, this is a learning process. And it's a process that we were kind of handed when we came into this world. And we've um, had to deal with it until now. And hopefully through it, we've learned and changed some things that were worth changing. And, and even, uh, you know, even though you may have come a long way down the path, if uh, you're still afraid when something happens, it's like Hajima Abua, you know, maybe the body will still react, maybe the mind will still react, but you'll have the tools to go, wait a minute, <laughs> it's really okay. This is the way things are. If I have the karma to get eaten by the mountain lion, um, then that's how it'll be. But I can go happy regardless. All right. Now, I'd like to know what you think. Yes, Carrie? Yeah, thank you. I'm going to go back in the living room in a few minutes. So uh, thank you for raising this. I've been thinking so much about this lately. And I know I've talked about this before because I think of it in the context of what I call biology or the instinctive reactions of the body because we're animals and we have a lot of deep instinctive reactions. And I, I, the way I've been thinking about fear is by noticing how react when I'm reacting to something and I'm angry and I'm defensive and I'm arguing and she said this and should you know when I really sink down into it underneath that is a, in my case often a deep fear from a very young age of not being loved that just like the fear of the tiger I think will <laughs> always be there but the way that I've been practicing with that is by backing out of the chain of dependent origination, which many years ago, you said, if you don't know what that is, you should learn about it. And I took that to heart. <laughs> um, and I back out to the feeling tone. Mm -hmm. And I'm finding that really helpful because fear is unpleasant. And it's supposed to be unpleasant, because fear is a, is a survival instinct. 
And so when I came back out to like, whoa, this is unpleasant. And guess what? It's supposed to be unpleasant. My body is trying to keep me alive. That gives me an option to react in a different way or think about it. And um, I'm also like noticing that when I have a pleasant, when I'm like planning or thinking, my mind is this, that, that actually underneath the anxiety of planning is a, a pleasant feeling that settles my nervous system, that feeling of security and safety, as if, if I could control the future, I would feel safe. And so just like today, listening to your, your, um, your guided meditation, I was really thinking about how to utilize that ability to create that sense of safety in my body um, to help hold the fear. Because if you have, uh, you know, you know how they say pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. Mm -hmm. I mean, all that stuff we layer on top of it is the optional stuff. So I have doubt going like, no, you're on the wrong track by thinking so much about instinct, but it's just like really pulling me in this direction of just settle into the, the natural animal responses back up to that response, set aside all the conditioning and reactivity and then go from there. So that's kind of where my practice is. What do you think about that? Yeah, that sounds really good. I like that, you know, you're, I think that's, that's right on, you know, it just, we keep applying the principles of the Dhamma as we back into it and come back out of it. So, you know, it's like, and, and, and that's what you're doing. It's like, you, you look at that animal response and you go, oh yeah, that's how, that's how it is, you know, and, and, um, we, we have this spiritual aspect. We're human beings. We have the spiritual aspect. We have that other world, otherworldly connection. And when the Buddha talked about feeling, there's, there's pleasant, there's pleasant um, mundane or earthly or worldly feeling. And then there's pleasant, unworldly feeling. You know, the jhanas, uh, rapture, piti, sukha, you know, it's like those, those experiences that carry us beyond this physical reality. So when you, when you back into the feelings, understanding, like you said, those things that happened to us in early childhood, we could be, we could have a whole, you know, a whole process of reacting around that and not even know where it came from. And even from previous lifetimes, you may not be able to recognize where it came from. Or maybe you will remember from a previous lifetime sometimes where something came from. And that can help. Sometimes it can help us see why we do what we do. If we really knew all about where this chitta has been, we would know <laughs> why we do what we do. But, you know, like, like you said, you know, really, really taking a look at that, a kind look, instead of a, a self-blaming look, and then really applying the Dhamma, knowing the way things actually are, that this is, this is what we, um, we can expect from life. And it's okay. Yeah, thank you, Kaylee.
anyone else? Any questions? Anything you felt like was not quite how it was for you, Val? Um, I just wanted to say thank you so much for this talk. Um, the guided meditation was wonderful as well. And um, yeah, I, um, your talk was just so many good reminders um, around fear. You know, I, I liked remembering, oh yeah, this is old conditioning. Um, this isn't necessarily, you know, this isn't me, <laughs> you know, it, it's just old stuff happening and it's okay to let go of it. Um, yeah, so thank you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Neil? Uh, I was going to try not to say anything because there's so much coming up since 9 a.m. Uh, from your talk, uh, from the guided meditation, from what Carrie said. Um, I thought, let me just sit with it. But when no one was raising their hand, I just sort of felt like, okay, I guess I'm supposed to say something. Um, yeah, I just have to say, um, it's just such a blessing to have you. Mm. The, the meditation, the, the connecting, the breath as the intermediary between this world and that, I mean, <sighs> blew my mind. And for reasons that will take me too long to go into, that have to do with my having trouble using the breath all of my life. And a recent meditation practice I've just started on that's got me now understanding better how to use the breath. And then I come in today and you say that, and it's just like expanding. And then talking about fear, um, I, you know, I, th I think I've pretty much overcome. I mean, I used to have a lot of anxiety in my life. And it's been quite a few years since I've experienced the kind of intense anxiety that I used to. And it's very odd that just this week on Tuesday, I woke up with incredible anxiety. Mm -hmm. And um, I had two things planned for the day, which I probably shouldn't have had two such intense things. One was go to the dentist to have my teeth ground down for another bridge followed by driving into two and a half miles into San Francisco to see a, a Broadway musical, <laughs> you know, and the, seeing the Broadway musical does not give me anxiety, but driving into San Francisco does. And while I was sitting in the dentist chair, I had a realization that I've had before, which is I keep noticing that my whole body is clenching. And I'm like, I know this dentist. I like this dentist. I trust this dentist. I have no reason to have to be afraid, but it's exactly what you talked about with Ajahn Mahaduva and the tiger. It's, you know, the body knows that somebody is invading my, it, you know, my is, is intimately invading my body and it's just tensing up. And each time I caught it, I would just say, okay, relax the muscles. And then, you know, within a matter of minutes, 
it's all clenched up again. And I just have to accept that that's the case. But what I couldn't understand was the, the knot in my stomach, you know, from the moment I woke up about driving into the city. And, um, you know, by the time the whole day was over, and you know, 10 o'clock at night, and I'm driving back to Ukiah, and I just feel fine. It's all been lifted, you know, because the whole anxiety has been lifted. Um, and I realized it's just, it's all just a lot of, I mean, what as a singer, what we call muscle memory. Mm -hmm. um, and the only thing to do about it is to just recognize it and try to let it go. Um, so, yeah, so, at, yeah, just so much, so much that this that I'm hooking into today, and I feel like I'm babbling on. But um, thank, just thank you so much for being there. Yeah, you're welcome, Neil. And I, I think you said a lot of things that make a lot of sense. I mean, I know, I think I might have shared with you when I, um, for the last, four, I don't know, 40 years or so, I've not done um, anesthetic when I go to the dentist. And I have the same experience, like my body tenses up. And the whole meditation, what takes me into a, um, a space of being able to be okay with the pain is is a is a relaxing I start at the toes and I go up my body and I relax every part of my body and then by the time I get to the top I used to avoid the place where the pain was being originated but then later I learned how I could be present with that be with it directly but by the time I get to the top, the toes are clenched again, and I gotta, you know, go back through. And the whole, the whole meditation is is really strong then, and there's no, um, it's not like you don't feel the pain at all, but it's it's not a problem. And and this we can take this as a metaphor, you know, we can we can be, we can talk to ourselves. And I really found it fascinating when I read Stillness Flowing, how Ajahn Chah would talk to himself, give himself a talking to. He would do both sides of the problem, you know, <laughs> the part that's reacting and the part that knows the Dhamma. And he would have these conversations with himself. And um, I find that really useful for myself because we are working with all this old material and we have these, these, these patterns and these reactions, but if we can kind of talk ourselves through it from the place of the Dhamma and let ourselves express that reactive part too, you know, to really, to really um, not bury it under something, but to be present with it. And then what we learn when we go through these things, you know, like, being in the dentist chair and having them do whatever they do. I did a root canal one time without anesthetic. The dentist told me ahead of time, it's not going to be too bad because the root's already dead and it wasn't too bad. But it's like, then you go through it and then you know you can do it. You know, it's like, oh, you know, this really isn't so bad. This is doable. I can deal with this. It's not a problem. You know, and you know, there's a point where we learn that this human life is not a problem.
no matter what it throws at us. Anybody else? Yes, Lisa. Yeah, sorry. All of a sudden, I couldn't find the icon for hand raising, but I know it's there somewhere. Um, yeah, thank you for bringing this bringing this topic today. It's um. And um, what other people have said, especially what um, Katie said about um, our survival instinct um, rising as something I think about very often about, um, um, you know, if even though we, we may know that uh, life is ever changing and so much out of our control um, we can't quite accept that. So there's some basic fear that just comes up again and again. And um, those four powers that you were talking about, um, I guess that's a way of focusing on what we can control. What we can control is our own ethical behavior and um, the relationships that we sustain and work on. Um, I didn't quite catch if there were four. <laughs> I, I got the, yeah. the um, blamelessness and favorable relationships. Was there something else that I missed on that? The energy. So the, the, the one on wisdom, the first one's wisdom. And the way wisdom is defined here is the, the knowledge of what's wholesome and what's unwholesome. And that's, that really is wisdom. You know, we know what's, what's good for us and what's not good for us. And not just in a, you know, like what I'm going to like uh, or dislike, but what's actually wholesome, what's actually not wholesome. And of course, things like keeping the precepts, things like right speech, all of its aspects Things like, um, you know, um, contentment rather than, than craving or desire, you know, kindness rather than ill will, and right view. Those are really the wholesome things. So knowing the difference between the wholesome and un the unwholesome, that's number one, wisdom. And then the second one is energy. We have to put in the effort, the energy to do the wholesome and to put the unwholesome aside. And the third one is blamelessness, a really, really good sila, moral virtue. And then the fourth one is sustaining favorable relationships. And it's true that these are the things we can control. We have the ability to choose these things. But it's also the case that these behaviors make it so, you know, like those things we don't have to be afraid of. You don't have to be afraid of getting a bad reputation, for example. Well, why? 
because whatever anyone might say about you that's negative, it's just not true. Or if you make, we make mistakes, but we own up to them and we, and we try to change them, we don't continue doing the same thing, that's harmful. I mean, you know, that's, that's admirable. And not worrying about kind of being timid in a group of people. We can hold our head up high anywhere with any group of people, no matter, you know, like they may have more education than we do or more money than we do, more success or more whatever, or it doesn't matter. You know, like if you have those things, being a really good person, being really moral and upright, being really kind and caring, you don't have to be, feel diminished in any circle. Don't have to feel timid in any circle. I mean, we might feel that way. But we can remind ourselves. We can have one of those conversations with ourselves. <coughs> Excuse me. And remember that we don't have to feel timid or afraid. But look at the other side. What if you live the other way? Being unwholesome. You know, living, living against the precepts, being lazy and not having the energy to, you know, shape your experience in a wholesome direction, but going the other way, not being a trustworthy friend. Well, then you're always looking over your shoulder, worrying. You're always, you know, afraid. Hi, I'm going to give this a try because I was really astounded to see that in uh, that sutta, which Neil just said was um, Anguttara Nikaya number nine, uh, nine, number five. Is that right? I'm thinking right. that um, timid in a group of people. And that really hit me. Because that's what I am. In fact, right now, my heart is beating really, really fast because I'm doing this. And I'm just going to do it because you mentioned that. Um, this was truly an astounding talk. I mean, it just really hit home so strongly and carried to just an amazing summary of what I was feeling. I love to be so articulate. But last night, I was reading... Um, a chapter by Ajahn Amaro called something like puncturing your papancha. <laughs> and in it, he talked about the world exactly as you were saying. And I never understood that before, how we create the world we're in through our perceptions mm. with that whole chain of independent origination. And that assignment I got from New Year's was about the sense contact and that whole area, which I've always been so curious about. And that just made so much sense reading what he said about this. Um, let me see. I just have to just kind of, oh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to remember now because it was so astounding reading this chapter. Because um, in it, he starts to talk about um, other cultures, one culture he talked about particularly in South America and the Amazon, 
where they have no concept of number. And there were a couple of other things where if a person is not present, they cannot talk about that person. They just cannot because they don't relate. A person is not there, so they can't talk about them. And just reading this and realizing how attached we are to those things that are not necessarily real. They're just beliefs that we have, you know, that we have numbers and we have dates and all of that. And it's, it's impossible almost to read this and, and have a sense of what it would mean to not have a number or not to not understand a number. So we're creating our world. And I'm just walking, just walking around in awe. And I'm so glad that you followed in this and tracking back. That was another thing that Ajahn Amaro recommended, exactly what Terry, Carrie was doing, was going backward through once you discover, ah, you're lost in thought or whatever it is, and go backward to try to find that seed. And I know it wouldn't be easy, but to do that it would be so freeing. So, I don't know. I'm just very moved. So, thank you. Thank you so much for this talk. You're welcome. Yeah. Free ourselves from those, the prison of those perceptions. And, and all along, being really kind to ourselves, knowing that, yeah, these feelings, these worries, these fears, this is all conditioned. It's natural. We're not afraid of anything we don't know anything about. We had to come in contact with this idea before where there wouldn't be fear. I mean, even the most basic thing, it's because we have a human body. It's because we've come into this existence. You know, so we can be really, really generous with ourselves, really kind and still guide ourselves towards peace and happiness. The unshakable kind. Do you know the name of your book? What's the name of your book? Um, Joyce, do you know? No, I don't have it right here, but I think the name of the book is Breakthrough. Okay. And he talks a lot about practice and he's got a lot of um, meditation practices in there. But he spent so much time on this chapter untangling something that's been such a knot. And I think it is for a lot of people. I mean, it's the way he did it, just brilliant. So I think it's called Breakthrough. Okay. And <clears throat> since it's from Ajahn Amaro, it would be available on the Amaravati website, probably as a free download. And also by Aguirre. I have it on my Kindle, but I think there might even be hard copies available, but I think it's going to be quite long. Okay. Yeah, thank you, Joyce. And it to me, and I'm so grateful. Yes, Linda? You've um, recently um, uh, talked to me about a different sutta um, um, in the linked discourses, uh, 
the I guess third chapter in number 25 the simile of the mountain and for me there's that the one line there that to me just uh, addressed this issue so well and it's what could I do but practice the teachings practice morality doing skillful and good actions and the reason that was so impactful to me is that you know there's these fears and i do all of the rational things to mitigate them and yet even doing those i've had the tendency to still uh, fret over them um, and i've already done everything reasonable uh, to eliminate them and for me just that line just just resonated so much with me. Um, so I wanted to share that with everybody and, and thank you so much for that. You're welcome. <clears throat> thank you for sharing that because it does, it takes us that step farther. Now this sutta is one that most of you probably know about. It's the one where the Buddha says to King Pisinity, what if, Sorry about that light. That's a little intense. I do not have a halo as far as I know. Well, I probably do, but <laughs> not quite that visible. Um, <clears throat> okay. The sutta where the Buddha says to King Pisanity, great king, what would you do if a man came from, I think he said the East, and he reported, this is a person you trust, and he reported that there is this mountain moving towards the kingdom and it's rolling over everything, you know, destroying everything that it comes to and it's coming in. And then another one came from the South. And so there's a mountain coming from the South doing the same thing and one from the West and one from the North and it's all coming. He said, what would you do? And then um, what Linda read, that's, that was the answer. Could you read that again, Linda? Could you say it again? What could I do but practice the teachings, practice morality, doing skillful and good actions? Yeah. Yeah. And how often does that take us out of ourselves? Takes us out of our worry. And then, you know, what happens when there is a big disaster? So many people really exhibit really what's best in themselves, what's transcendent, you know, real generosity, kindness, you know, a sense of really taking care of each other. I was listening to a talk by Ajahn Brahmali earlier today, and he talked about a a book that was written about the people in Norway. So he's Norwegian and he was talking, it's, he was talking about this book from the time of um, World War II. And Norway was overrun by, um, by the Nazis, uh, like other, most of the rest of Europe. And, you know, they, they suffered from, not having enough food and uh, and it's hard to grow things in Norway. So it's, it was really a hardship and many, many other hardships during that time. 
including the fear for the, the part of the population that was Jewish and and they were taken to concentration camps and you know just all kinds of of things and but he said there was this um, study about happiness and and it was to talk with different people about happiness before the war and during the war and it was discovered that people were actually happier during the war even though they had so much hardship and the reason was because people actually kind of band would band together like take care of each other there was so much more of an outpouring of of human kindness um as Ajahn Bramali said, they kind of had a common enemy, <laughs> was the, the German army, but they, but they were together, you know, had so much more, many more beautiful experiences. And this is, this is what really, really caused their happiness, even though physically they were really suffering. Okay, we're going to change that. Physically, they were really suffering. So it's it's something to think about. It's like what really brings us to life? Um, what really brings us beyond this world? All those qualities, those are spiritual qualities that are that are really that are really um, you know here for us, and also that's what um, the spiritual world is about. Neil? Um, just a quick comment that what you were just talking about put me in mind of a wonderful movie called Hope and Glory about a British town during the Blitz in World War II. And it's just this wonderful film of how, you know, people coped. And um, it's, it's practically a comedy, and yet it's very, very um, Would you say the title again? Because I missed hope, it. Hope and Glory. Hope and Glory? Yeah, I think it was from the 80s. Okay. Yeah, I'm always, I well, not always, but we, we once in a while hear about movies that we put on the, um, the rated N list, which is none approved. So we'll check it out. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.